Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Scott Linden here. Glad you could join me. Due to popular request, yeah, that's the topic today. Some of the skills that bird hunters should have before they set foot in the field. You probably know a lot of these. Maybe you'll get a new um, uh, perspective on some of them. But if uh, nothing else, you'll pick up a different way to do something or you'll be inspired to teach somebody else to do something a little bit better, save themselves a little bit of time, trouble, and maybe even save a life. Yeah, it's all coming up right here on the Upland Nation podcast. Skills every bird hunter should have. From campfire building to knot tying to, uh, well, uh, a variety of things that will definitely make you the cool uncle. And also the man every man wants to be and every woman wants to be with. But that's not all. We're going on a road trip. I'll suggest a couple alternatives to the Dakotas for pheasants with a little Bob White bonus. And it's all made possible by Hi-Viz Shooting Systems. See what you've been missing. Landtrust.com. ProPlan Sport from Purina. MidwayUSA.com. TrueLock Choke Tubes. Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. Pointer Shotguns. And Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products. Well, around here, you know, early season, we've got plenty of training challenges. Maybe you're doing it too. Even in the field, a good idea. Covey flushes, that's what we're working on most because that's what we're encountering most these days. Singles flick is just fine. It's those big bunches that kind of mill around and drive him crazy. So I'm, you, you, maybe you ought to do this too. Or, or here's a suggestion for you, at least. You know those old style milk crates, you know, the, they're made out of metal or sometimes plastic. Basically a box. Well, I put a lid on one of those and I put three, four, five pigeons in there when I'm training and uh, drop that off somewhere in the field and then run Flick out there. He'll find, he'll find the scent. I mean, how, how could he not with four or five pigeons in there? And then I'll just tip that box over, that milk crate. Just tip it over, and all the birds will find their way out in a matter of five, ten seconds. And then they'll start flying off. One here, one there, one here, one there. Flick is staying steady for all of that, and that's kind of the joy of that, as opposed to the launchers, which I love for doubles or singles. But this big bunch kind of going out in dribs and drabs is really a challenge for a dog. And Flick is doing exceptionally well on that. So let's hope it continues to pay off this bird season. I'll have a full report very soon from somewhere out there. Uh, It sure is uh, fun to see him develop. And I know you love it too when you watch your own dog uh, and see the light bulb go off no matter what the skill. Yeah. So how about you? Um, you're looking ahead. You know, this is the time of year when you you, you kind of get a grasp of the whole season. And I asked recently in their Upland Nation news letter uh, about when you take your big trip of the hunting season. Yeah, I'm knocking wood because I'm taking a couple big trips this year. I'll keep you posted. Uh, one South California, maybe even Southern Nevada. And uh, one uh, east, 
over to the Idaho-Oregon border. Uh, nice long trips. But you, when do you take that trip? Well, 33% of you say early in the season. 48% say middle of the season. And 18.5% say late in the season. I understand all three rationales there. That's why I travel the whole season. Some big, some small trips. But uh, yeah, glad you're thinking ahead. And um, and hey, keep me posted with some of your um, trips. Send me some pictures on uh, social media. You know, the Upland Nation podcast is supported solely by, well, number one, your loyal listening. I appreciate that. But also... The bills are paid by these people, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. How's your shooting been so far? Well, you know how well it has gone for me in that a single lesson has continued to put more birds in the bag already this season. If you're looking for a shooting lesson or maybe a new shotgun, midvalleyclays.com is where you ought to start. If you're in western Oregon at all or heading this way for some kind of a trip, then you might want to take a lesson with Dave or Vandy or one of the other hunting instructors they have there. They'll fix you up, put another bird in the bag for yourself as well at midvalleyclays.com. And sageandbreaker.com, gun cleaning and care, everything from uh, sh shotgun cases to um, cleaning, lubricating and protecting uh, solutions of various sorts. They are, yeah, building out their flagship flagship office and retail shop down there in Sonoida, Arizona. Yeah, if you're a fanatic quail hunter hoping to visit the Mecca of Mern's Quail, stop on by sageandbreaker.com. Watch them for more information. And, of course, sign up for future sales and new products and the opening date for their office and retail shop at sageandbreaker.com breaker.com Yeah, I know. I know. You know most of these. Maybe you'll get a different perspective. Maybe you'll learn something today. That's my goal. These are the things that, you know, as a kid growing up on the wrong side of the valley, I, I never got to learn all these until I became a Boy Scout, and then I got to practice the wrong way for years and years, and now here I am having learned the hard way, so perhaps you don't have to. And, and I was reminded of this recently. I was out in one of the windier places I like to hunt. Uh, sometimes it's a lake, sometimes it's a dry lake bed, and I was watching um, some guys fishing, of all things. It was a lake at that point. And uh, one guy turned around, he was waiting in this, what was left of the lake. He turned around and watched his tent just wheel off into the distance downwind. He had probably tied it down with the wrong kind of knots. So we'll talk about that, among other things. But if, if you don't want to be that guy, or if you're just looking for some reminders of uh, some of the more practical outdoor skills not dog-related, not shooting-related. These are the basics. These are the Daniel Boone skills that you probably ought to use. Yeah, and even if you were a Boy Scout, some of these uh, we never covered, and I doubt they're covering them now. Heck, you can get a 
merit badge in video games now. How how the heck are they going to make room for that if you're not learning how to sharpen a knife, for example? Anyway, here they are in no particular order. Um, pet peeves of mine, uh, and maybe yours too. Uh, like I said, if nothing else, maybe you're inspired to teach someone else. Let's start with fire building. Nothing, nothing is as good as a fire at the end of the day. I've told you bits and pieces of stories over the years and how magical and, uh, and magnetic an open fire is. We were closing out the season, I think it was, last year in a place that, um, it was a little RV park, four or five spaces, and that's it. Um, Tom brought a fire ring, and we built a fire, and pretty soon everybody in the RV park was there. And then somebody driving by pulled in. And the joy of it was everybody brought something to the party. That's what fires do. But building one that doesn't smoke, that lights readily and burns a long time is, is a little bit harder than many people think. Unless you start with the right ingredients and a little fundamental knowledge. Remember, we're not talking about a bonfire. We're not trying to signal the International Space Station. We're just trying to build a little fire that we can gaze into and come up with the solutions to the world's problems. Or BS with our friends. You need three kinds of burnable material. Tinder, kindling, and fuel wood. Tinder is the light, dry, small stuff. If it crunches in your hands when you crush it, that's dry enough. That's also a pretty good indication of the kind of things you're looking for. Leaves, grass, pine needles, some types of tree bark. Make sure it's nice and dry and get a lot more than you think you need. Now, kindling is second on the list. Kindling is pencil diameter wood. Twigs, small branches, slivers from larger pieces of wood. And if you have a choice, uh, I like that stuff that has edges on it rather than round branches, for example. I like edges that'll catch flame better from the tinder. Yeah, that way the fire has somewhere to start on that next step, which is fuel wood. That's the stuff from an inch to a foot in diameter. Down branches, pieces of split logs, you know what that's all about. A foot or two in length. Not much bigger or your fire's likely to get out of hand. All right, uh, so don't build under overhead branches. Remember that. Don't build on, uh, you know, dry grass, you know, logical stuff. Then pick your architecture. There's a lot of ways to build a fire or lay a fire as the term of art goes. I like the modified log cabin. That's uh, two walls, if you will, stacked, uh, you know, in a 90 degree angle, one on top of the other on top of the other, three or four layers high. Into that, I'll nestle that gigantic ball of tinder. Then I just lay the kindling against the top of the walls in both directions. Put a few pieces of fuel wood above all of that. Leave plenty of room for air. Remember, the best smokeless fire is equal parts heat, fuel, and oxygen. Once your fire is laid, touch a match to the tinder, and go get the marshmallows.
this one came up again today and uh and with luck it will be of use to you at some point uh, first off i can't stress enough that someday you're going to lose your phone your gps is going to go sideways the batteries are going to fail whatever it is so bring a paper map or bring a piece of a paper map i make photocopies or a, you know i print them out of my computer printer so I don't have to carry that gigantic map that you can roll up and sleep in that you get from most of the federal land management agencies. Anyway, paper map or not, have the skills to use it and then a compass along with it. Because even if you're not the best route finder with a paper map and a compass, at some point you do need to know how to find a catch line that will lead you back to a known location. Your camp, the truck, the nearest civilization, whatever it is. How do you do that? First, study your map. Bring along a copy. Then when you get to your destination, make note of a stream or the road you're on, a nearby ridgeline or other long, relatively straight feature in relation to where you're going. Now, that'll be your catch line. Let's just call it a stream for now. You'll always hunt away from that catch line. And as long as you know which direction you went in relation to the catch line, you're home free. Here's an example. I'm camped along a river that runs north-south. I hunt away from camp to the east. When I want to head back, I simply walk west until I reach the river. Then all I have to determine is, do I walk north or south to find camp? If I'm really smart and I plan to head, I'll overshoot camp on purpose, say a few hundred or a few thousand yards to the north. Then I know when I hit the stream, I just walk south. Hey, it works. One word of wisdom. Master your orienteering compass before you go. When GPS was a brand new technology, I was teaching it to a lot of sportsmen show audiences. But before I got to the electronics, I'd talk a little bit about map and compass and remind people how few of us have those skills to begin with. I'd take an orienteering compass and lob it out into the audience and ask somebody to show me north on that thing. Yeah, you're right. About half the time, they showed me south. Well, good luck, and let's hope you never even need to use your compass and your map, but if you do, at least you'll know how. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast, all outdoor skills, all podcasts today. I'm Scott Linden, your host. I hope some of this is going to be useful to you or somebody you know. Many years ago, I had the chance to spend some quality time with Chuck Buck. Yeah, Buck Knives. At the time, he was the, the guru and the founder of the company, <clears throat> running a great company out of Post Falls, Idaho, and Chuck... I know you're not with us anymore, but I thank you for this lesson. Everybody needs a sharp knife. In fact, I'm obsessed about this kind of stuff. I have more knife sharpeners than I know what to do with. But if you're down to one knife and one sharpening stone and nothing else, Chuck taught me this 
trick a long time ago. First off, wet your sharpening stone. It's called a wet stone, W-H-E-T, but you want to wet it, W-E-T. Best thing to use is some sort of mineral oil. Vegetable oil will do in a pinch. Spit will do if you got nothing else in the field, for example. The whole point of the moisture is to carry away the little bits of uh, metal that come off your knife when you're sharpening. All right. You got a good, nice whetstone that is wet. Grip the knife, extending your index finger along the spine. So you're just holding it like you would hold it. But take your index finger and go along the spine, the top edge of the blade. The angle is, is not as important as the consistency from side to side, but you know, try and get a 10 or 15 degree angle of blade to stone. And you'll eyeball it and maybe you'll have to practice a little bit. The real key is to just get the same angle on both sides. So, easy way, press hard. You'll put a mark in your index finger where the spine hits it. Look at that and do it with your other hand on the other side. Now, if you have the oil, use it. If you have any other kind of moisture, use it. Be generous. And then start on the rough grit side of the stone. Make about a dozen strokes with moderate pressure. Now, what you're trying to do is not just go straight down the spine. I mean, down the stone. You're trying to go as if you're slicing a piece of the stone off. So kind of a curve. You get the entire blade that way. And that's one way to do it is you move it so that your entire blade has contact with the stone. You're shaving the stone. Swap hands, check your finger to spine angle and repeat for the other side. That'll probably take the most practice because who sharpens a stone with their left hand? I mean, sharpens a knife with their left hand. A little bit of practice, you'll get it figured out. If your stone has a fine grit side, oil it up and do the same thing. You don't need quite as many strokes when you're just honing it that way. But it is critical to use that fine grit when you can. That takes a little, there's really a little microscopic bead on your knife blade when you finish the coarse side. Uh, yeah, it's, it's from pressure. It's from uh, all the, 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 um, the, what do we call it? The abrading that you're doing. You just want to get that squared away and straight. You can't really take it off. You just straighten it out. All right, now you're ready to skin that um, sage grouse <laughs> the right way. Um, uh, and uh, so who, who doesn't want to get back to camp for happy hour? I didn't see anybody raise their hands. So if you do and you don't have your phone and you don't carry, who carries a watch these days? And sometimes, yep. We've taken too many pictures or something else happens and our mobile phone is dead. You want to get back to camp before dark or before shooting hours end? You figure out how much time you have left? Here's a simple way. Extend your arm fully in front of you. Palm vertical to the ground. Cock your wrist inward so you can see your palm 
with your fingers stacked on top of each other. Now, don't look directly at the sun. Yeah, not just for eclipse times, all the time. Focus on your fingers. Raise your hand until the index finger is just under the bottom of the sun. Count the number of fingers between the bottom of the sun and the horizon. If you have to add your other hand, that's okay too. All right, the number of fingers multiply by 15 minutes. That's a pretty good estimate. No matter how long your arms, no matter how small or big your hands, about 15 minutes per finger. And by the way, yes, single malt with a quarter teaspoon of water in it, please, and nothing else. Because you've gotten back to happy hour before I have. Oh, man, so much to talk about. This one, uh, again. All right, this, I want to thank Lynn and Tad, my two cameramen and editors, for all of these bits of advice on taking better photos and videos. Because isn't that the coolest part about going is sharing the stories afterwards? And isn't the coolest part about sharing the stories showing the pictures in the video? I just went on YouTube just out of curiosity for another project and I was watching other people's stuff and, and this just came home again. It was just, I was reminded again of, yeah, I know we're not talking about making art here, simply better home movies or better snapshots. If you want to make a statement, go to film school. But if you just want decent shots to share with your friends, read on. All right. Most of the time, whether it's video or stills, fill the frame with the subject. Sure, go ahead. Take a few establishing shots. And I've got a great one of my buddy Dave underneath this incredibly backlit arch in the middle of a place I can't tell you where to go. But then I zoom in and get pictures of him and his dog. So fill up the frame whenever you can with the stuff that's important. Now, when you're filling it up, leave some space somewhere. Uh, the old style, well, the, the guys who started this all for us, and we're grateful for them, all the folks in the outdoor magazines who were pioneers in this area, they, among others, created what some people call the rule of thirds. Now, I'm not going to go into that because I don't want to put a grid on your pictures, but make your pictures slightly asymmetrical. Put the subject a little bit left, right, toward one corner, whatever it is. And when you're doing that, of course, if you're using a point-and-shoot capability on your phone camera, for example... You focus on your subject and you'll get the little square or whatever it is. Then move it a little bit off center. I can guarantee you, you and your audience will like those pictures a little bit better. And I'm guilty of this too. You know that big hat. The brim is really wide. So my eyes are often in shadow. Now out in the field, we can't do much about that when we're making TV shows. But when you're shooting stills, remember the eyes really are the window to the soul. But if they're invisible because they're in shadow, your photos have less personality. And even my wife knows this one. She hears me mutter it under my breath all the time when I'm watching other people's shows. Sunglasses are even worse. 
And, you know, I've got a theory and I've never been able to find anybody with any evidence, but I think dogs are confused by people wearing sunglasses too. So at least for the photos or the videos, take off the sunglasses. Then we know who you really are. All right. You know, the good old stuff. Um, uh, watch for the extraneous stuff. I've got a great shot, but for one thing, this was years ago, a pro came on a shoot with us. He gave us a lot of great photos to use. You've seen most of them, including the one I'm describing where I have a plant growing out of my head because it was in the background. He was fo so focused on the dog and me, he didn't even realize that. Now, if you know how to do Photoshop, of course, you can fix all that, but save it. Save yourself the trouble. Eliminate that stuff beforehand. Get rid of all the crap on the ground, you know, things that um, will distract the eye. And um, shoot some insurance frames, obviously. Back in the day when film was still a thing, we used to say film is a lot cheaper than going back and resetting the shot. Obviously, bites and bits are a lot cheaper. On the video side, somehow stabilize your camera if you can. A tripod, monopod, shooting stick, anchor of any kind, even against a tree trunk, is better than nothing. Most times, slowly move that camera back and forth rather than quickly. Most times, try not to follow your subject with the camera by walking alongside or behind him because you, all you get is the up-down movement of every step. Yeah, Tad said in film school they actually taught him how to stabilize his camera while walking. And then he mastered it by walking backwards in front of me and, and all my guests on the TV show. The guy is great. Lynn, you're even better because you're doing it on the dogs. Anyway, be careful, minimize movement. If you must pan or tilt, move up and down or back and forth, right and left, move it slowly. Well, those are some tips from me that have come in handy over the years. Uh, Lance Larson, a number one buddy and woodcarver. Lance, I took out your cigar box guitar today and played a few tunes on it such as they were. Nobody would recognize what they are. But Lance has his own tip. He says, when you're out walking all day, turn around and look at your back trail periodically. Take note of the things that stand out, whether it's in the distance or even in the near distance, so that you can come back the same way and know what the reverse of your route looks like. And Wildfire Deacon suggests that one of the most important skills you can use and apply in the outdoor world is meal planning. <clears throat> hey, I'm not going to argue that one. I've been doing it all week in anticipation of a week-long hunting trip. And boy, oh boy, I think I'm going to be overstocked, but that's okay too. we got a lot more to come, including a few more suggestions from you all right after this. And don't forget, also the road trip, alternatives to the Dakotas for pheasants with a Bob White bonus. Trulock Chokes, Scott Trulock just reminded me they've got a choke tube for just about any shooting activity. They've got 2,000 choices for you. 
If you want to learn more about choke tubes and what's important in them, go to truelockchokes.com. Don't forget they have a lifetime warranty and a satisfaction guarantee. Plus, lots of incentives to save you money. Just go to T-R-U-L-O-C-K chokes.com. And Flick is fueling his excellence in the field with Purina Pro Plan Sport dog food. ProPlansport.com is where you learn more about their entire selection of formulations for sporting dogs. You know, only one dog food brand fuels the most sporting dog champions. That's Pro Plan Sport. Now, I noticed Flick's got a little bit of hitch in his get-along these days. He's a little limpy when he's getting up off the floor. Well, he's six years old now, so there's all sorts of joint issues there. So I am glad for the Pro Plan Sports Omega-3 fatty acids and glucosamine to support joint health and mobility. Learn more about how they can solve your problems with nutrition at Pro Plan sport.com Welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Scott Linden here sharing some of the things I've learned the hard way so you don't have to. Including this one. Man, have I seen this just uh just it, it makes me cringe sometimes. We've all been there and we will all be there again even if it's just to help somebody else. If you're trying to jumpstart a truck, there's a right way and a wrong way, and the wrong way could be very, very dangerous. I'm not a car guy, but I've studied this one enough to know this is one of the right ways to do it. If you got to jump vehicle to vehicle, think about this. First off, make sure the battery is really dead. If you hear nothing but a click when you turn the key, you're probably right. But if the motor cranks when you turn the key, it's not a dead battery yet. But it will be if you keep cranking without the engine starting. All right, so we've determined that. So bring the good truck nose to nose with the one you're trying to start. And if you can't get nose to nose, get alongside and make it convenient. You want to be careful about how you're managing those cables. We don't want them tangled in anything like a fan or a pulley or one of the belts. All right, then connect the red. Well, first turn them off. <laughs> no engines running. Connect the red cable to the positive terminal on the dead battery. Check twice. Make sure it's the positive terminal. Then connect the other end of the same red cable to the positive terminal of the good battery. Then connect the black negative cable clamp to the negative terminal of the good battery. Three points so far. Hold on. Listen carefully. Connect the other end of the negative cable to a clean, unpainted metal surface under the disabled rig's hood. Not the other terminal. A manifold, the frame if you can scrape the paint off, big bolts, whatever it is, not the other terminal on the battery. Then route the cables, ensure they won't tangle in the fan belt, etc., etc., as I said. 
All right, start the truck with the good battery. Let it run for a couple minutes. Then try and start the other vehicle. If it won't turn over in a couple tries, wait until the good vehicle runs a few more minutes and try it again. All right, once it's running, remove the cables in reverse order. And if you've ever accidentally let the clamps touch each other, well, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of amusing, <clears throat> but very dangerous. Then let the jump car run for at least 30 minutes to ensure it's got enough charge to get wherever you need to go next and start itself up one more time. <clears throat> I get questions about cooking game birds a lot. I'm, I'm no cook. I'm no chef. But I've talked to a lot of them over the years. From Andrew Zimmern on down, Chef John in particular, thank you so much. <clears throat> Pardon me. Generally speaking, impress your friends and have an enjoyable meal by, of course, taking good care of that bird the minute it's shot. Then, fast and hot, just to rare, is one good plan. Birds continue cooking once they're removed from the heat, and you want to be careful not to overcook it. It's dry. It's tough. You can always put it back, but you can't suck that heat back out. So be careful about overcooking. You overcook a duck or a goose, it'll be fishy or taste like liver. Guaranteed. Big whole birds, well, even small birds like quail, seldom turn out right because if you cook them whole, the legs and thighs will get done before the breasts. So one or the other is going to be, you're going to have raw breasts or you're going to have overcooked legs and thighs. Break them apart. Cook them separately. I, I like to save all the legs and thighs and backs in a bag. I make uh, salad out of them. I make taco meat, etc., etc. But they're separate from the breasts. Now, if you're um, one of those traditional crock pot guys who throws a mushroom soup and some rice in and then drops a bunch of birds in, make it low and slow. That's the whole point of a crock pot. And add plenty of liquid. It'll cook out. <clears throat> Pardon me again. You want to impress your guests at your next game bird dinner? Put a little apricot jam or cherry compote on top of those breasts. No, you've never put fruit on your game? Dark fruit for red meat. Light fruit for white meat. It's unbelievable. Try it sometime. Okay. Another one that comes in handy for me, far be it for me to be somewhere without a bottle opener, but it does happen every once in a while. And so here are some ways to open it anyway. No, don't use your teeth. Show off. Hold that bottle by the neck. You know, like, um, like a baseball bat. You know, remember that? What did we call that? Anyway, um, hold it like you're holding a baseball bat. So only the cap shows above your grip. With the other hand, take a spoon, the base of a cigarette lighter, other rigid tool, even the cap edge of another beer bottle. Slip it under there and using your finger as the, what do we call it? The fulcrum. And your spoon or cigarette lighter as the lever, just slowly 
carefully lever the cap off. You might need to go around a little bit. And if that doesn't help, I don't know what will. Once it's open, pour it the right way too. Yeah, use a glass if you can. Ideally, it's cool but not frosty. Frozen glasses uh, will just rob flavor from your beer. Angle your glass about 45 degrees and pour from the bottle. Hit the glass about an inch from the top with that pour. Once you got about half a glass, if there's no head, there's no foam on there, turn the glass straight up and pour directly into the center of the beer. With practice, you'll get the ideal, about an inch or so of foam. Your homework assignment is to practice until you've got it straightened out. And then practice some more. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. Uh, there's my reminder to move on to the next item, and I appreciate your listening. Uh, stay warm in your sleeping bag. Wear dry sleeping apparel. Don't wear the clothes you wore all day. They're full of perspiration. That will wick all the heat from your body. Eat or drink something warm before bed. Yes, hot buttered rum counts. Warm socks and a stocking cap. Remember what mom said? Heat. It's true and it's not true. Heat escapes from the top of your head because it's usually the only thing without any clothing on it. Use a sleeping pad for insulation. Put a waterproof ground sheet under you or your tent. That will also keep bone-chilling moisture from seeping into your sleeping bag. And then if it's really cold, another vapor barrier... Buckaroos always had a bedroll that was made of canvas. They would throw that over themselves. It breathed plenty, but it was also a good vapor barrier. Drive a muddy road the right way. Go slow. Avoid braking. That's how you lock your wheels and slide, and gravity takes over instead of your four-wheel drive, which you should be using anytime you're in mud. Stay in a low gear. Drive slow. Look ahead on the road and anticipate the best line and maintain as much momentum as safe. You get stuck in a rut. First thing, move the steering wheel left to right as you're driving. The side treads might help you grip the rut walls. Don't do anything drastic with your steering wheel. That'll throw the weight and momentum of your vehicle in the wrong direction. I can guarantee it. Don't ask how I know. If you do get stuck, obviously the first solution is more weight on the drive wheels. That might get you just enough traction. Sometimes you only need a few inches to get some momentum going. Put your friends in the truck bed. Or place branches, brush, your floor mats, gravel in front of the drive tires and create some traction. You know, those store-bought uh, gripper things now are pretty clever, and they work sometimes. Don't use them on ice. They'll just shoot out the back like a rocket. Sometimes if you're in a, a hole, you can rock back and forth going from forward to reverse. But if you think spinning your wheels is going to help, you're just going to dig yourself in deeper. <laughs> we had a production assistant who tried that once with one of my vans back in the day, and <laughs> I had to ask him to step aside. We got out, 
but we did it the old-fashioned way, nice and slow. If you need a little leverage, and sometimes that's all it takes to get out of a rut, that's why I bring a long-handled shovel with me all the time. Some other kind of lever might help, a, a small diameter log, something to push on the bumper as you're leveraging forward or backwards, depending on the smartest way to go. All right, <clears throat> let's hope you never have to deal with that. Or if you do, that it's nice and warm instead of cold. I could go on all day about knots, and so can you. You have your own uses for your own favorite knots, but the objective here is to remind you that there are right knots and wrong knots, and a granny knot is never the right knot, not even for, <laughs> pardon the pun, not even for your bandana. As I said, do you if, if you want to be the man other men want to emulate, tie a square knot on your bandana. On your tent guy lines, use a taut line hitch. Strapping down a load, use a trucker's hitch. And for all sorts of uses, two half hitches are the right knot. Add this to your favorites list on your computer, animatednots.com. You name it, they got it. They'll teach you how to do it. It is the best knot tying site I've ever found. And it will probably help you at some point. All right. Um, you know, I've never seen this in the bird dog world. You go into some of the other worlds, whether it's the, um, the shootun world, even the agility world. If you need to break up a dog fight, there is... Um, well, you've probably seen the results of somebody doing it wrong. Never grab dogs by the collar. You cannot keep two fighting dogs apart by holding their collars. They can reach you, and they will. I don't care how nice your dog is. When he's in a fight, he has no regard for even the best of owners. And you might get bit as he's going for the other dog or just because he wants to keep going for the other dog, and you're stopping that. Now, if there's two people, here's the way to do it. I'll never forget having to do it last year on the shore of a lake. One person each grabs the back legs of each dog. Back legs, away from the fight. Pulls those dogs backward and circular, like a wheelbarrow. That makes a dog sidestep with his front feet or fall over. Nice and slow, just keep pulling back and sidestepping. He can't bite you, he can't move forward. Keep pulling them into separate rooms or yards or something. Then it's time to clean everybody up and check for damages. Wheelbarrow, best dog fighting breakup I've ever seen used and I've ever used. Okay, do me a favor. Um, deliver the coup de grace on a wounded bird the right way. There are a lot of ways. Here's one that works for me. Hold the bird in your dominant hand. Wings tight against the body, breast up. Okay, pull the bird's legs with your non-dominant hand. 
pull them straight out. Then wrap your dominant index finger, your other hand, and thumb around the bird's neck just below the head. So the back of the bird's head is in the crook of the finger and thumb. Now as you stretch your dominant arm straight out, you'll put tension on the bird's body. That's good. When you reach the limit of stretching the bird, bend the head back, increase tension, and that'll break the vertebrae. Nice, humane, easy. Another one is the taxidermist squeeze. Hold the bird by its breast so that your fingers and your thumb are in its armpits, such as it is, under the wings. Then squeeze hard. That'll stop both breathing and the bird's heartbeat. Hey, give them the honor they deserve. It's sportsmanlike. And in this case, it's also efficient. And if you don't want to put the bird out of its misery, you just want to dizzy it for dog training, put it to sleep, most of the time this one works pretty good. There's some debate on whether this is the best way to do it, but this one works for most people most of the time. Hold the bird in both hands. Swing the body in short, quick arcs in front of you, you know, in big circles. So its head swings back and forth. The key is getting the bird's head to swivel. So you can do a kind of a, a rocking motion or you can do a circular motion as long as you see that bird's head swivel. Might take a few moments, but then their head should start to loosen up and they'll just kind of be dizzy. Turn the bird up, tuck the bird's head under one wing, some people suggest the right wing. <laughs> hold the wing and the head with one hand while you hold the bird's feet with the other. Lay the bird on its side with the head down, tucked under that wing and under its whole body. While continuing to hold it gently, pull its legs straight back, carefully, slowly. Hold the legs and bird for a second or two, then sneak away. That bird should wake up in a few moments and be standing there looking confused until your young trainee dog shows up to point it. All right, the Upland Nation podcast is all about stuff that we need to know to be safe and happy and comfortable. And I'll end my uh, litany of pet peeves and suggestions with this one. Help somebody find you. Not just this morning, I saw some search and rescue call out because somebody threw up when they were climbing a, a mountain. Yeah, they got a helicopter ride home because they had food poisoning. Don't be that guy. We might be able to tough it out with our survival skills, but at some point, wouldn't it be great if someone came looking for you? Here are some things that I've learned. First off, when Dave and I sat down once over a few hot toddies, we counted seven deer creeks we'd fished at and five different grouse mountains in our hunting bailiwick. So if I told my wife we're, we're hunting on grouse mountain, she wouldn't even know where to start. So tell somebody 
and then mark it on a map and leave it with them. You got kids going with you? Or even yourself, make a print of your boot soles. That way when searchers are starting their search, they know who to look for and who to count out. Put a sheet of aluminum foil on soft ground or on carpet. Step on it with both feet. It's as good as a fingerprint. Now, I've made an informal study of search and rescue reports over the last decades. There are a few recurring errors that are to blame for most of the volunteer call-outs. If you can avoid them, you could save your life, or at least the time, effort, and risk of those worthy volunteers. So, take a few minutes and charge your cell phone battery. Avoid bucking the snowdrifts on a road. They'll only get worse the farther uphill you go. I've talked about a map and compass and the skills to use them. Take water. Tell someone where you're going, when you, to expect you back. Leave them a map. Take a waterproof layer of clothing. And learn how to build a life-sustaining fire, no matter what the conditions, and with limited tools and materials. Michael Salamone asks if we'll do something about first aid for dogs. I think we're going to do a whole podcast on that sometime soon, including how to get a dog out of a trap. But in the meanwhile, uh, at all the Facebook pages, I put a video from the guy who invented a great device. Go to the Facebook pages and look at how to get a dog out of a conibear trap. And I'll cover the rest of that stuff and a few other things in an upcoming podcast. In the meanwhile, hopefully some of these skills, some of these tips and tricks were of value to you or to somebody you know who needs to acquire a few more of them over the years. Good luck out there. I've got more, including our road trip to alternatives for North and South Dakota coming up right after this from PointerShotguns.com. There's nothing worse than a trigger click without a boom following it immediately. That's why I like pointer shotguns. All their shotguns come with a seven-year warranty and their customer service is strong and robust. They've got new side-by-sides. They've got some case-colored guns. They've got all those Cerakote colors and prices start under $700. Shop your models, including youth guns, at PointerShotguns.com. Find a nearby retailer and pick up one of those incredibly well-built, fit-and-finish-ready guns for this hunting season. And for everything else you need, remember that Midway USA carries just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors. MidwayUSA.com. Put together a big shopping list. I just did. Sign up for their email or text notifications and you'll get 10% off everything on that next order. Now, if you're looking for non-toxic upland ammo, they've got it. I just ordered a bunch of bismuth. I'm going to get some more steel. Spending a lot of time in California this season. So uh, if you're looking for non-toxic or just plain old regular lead shot of various sorts, they've got a selection to beat the band. It's all at MidwayUSA.com.
Well, when it comes to pheasants, they do get all the glory. Those states with north and south in the title. But if you're um, looking for an alternative for any number of reasons, then I would look south and I would look further west. Montana, Kansas, both are strong pheasant venues these days, especially eastern Montana up near Plentywood, down southwest toward Lewistown. I was there. I can assure you there are pheasants to be found. thing I like about Montana and about the next state I'll mention is their great walk-in management program. Over there it's called BMA, Block Management Access. Great, easy to use, simple. Kansas starts a little later. Their season opens in mid-November. They offer a bigger bag limit, four birds a day. And their season-long non-resident license is very affordable. Use it late this season, early next season, whatever. Again, another great walk-in program. I would start near Norton, Jetmore, or Osborne for Bob Whites in addition to the pheasants. If you want mainly pheasants, Goodland and Atkinson are great starting points. Now get out the maps and start your own engine. And the road trip this week was brought to you by HiVizSites.com. See what you've been missing. Go to the website, H-I-V-I-Z-Sites.com. Click on the Learn tab. Dozens of shotgunning tips there. And if you're a rifle shooter or a handgun hunter, lots of tips as well. It's all at HiVizSites.com. And LandTrust.com is where you have exclusive access to privately owned land for quality hunting experiences. Now, I've been out, I've experienced it firsthand, and I've got lots of reports from friends and acquaintances who are enjoying the freedom it creates for you and your dog. So go to LandTrust.com, open a free account. You don't need to do anything to, to open the account. Then shop around. In fact, if you don't even want to do that, just go there and shop around. Search for what you're looking to hunt and where you're looking to do it. Learn more about how to do that at LandTrust.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thanks for listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I appreciate your telling one person about the podcast, and hopefully they'll learn as well. If you left a rating or a review, I appreciate that as well. And I appreciate the support of our sponsors who make this all possible. Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Purina, Pro Plan Sport, Dog Food, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, True Lock Chokes, MidwayUSA.com, LandTrust.com, and of course you can learn more about all of these things in more detail at FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. I'm Scott Linden. See you in the field.